very good to see all of you. Glad you were able to make it here on a chilly morning. Ever since Thursday of this week, I've had a sore throat I've been fighting. And so I'm sort of extra sniffly. I've been sniffly ever since the sinus surgery in February. But now with this sore throat thing, I'm all extra sniffly. Dawn brought me this nice bottle of Thayer's Natural Remedies Slippery Elm Lozenges. And I took one this morning, so if my voice sounds slippery, (laughs) that, that, that would be why. It's working. Yeah, exactly. Todd, I had something in my mind this morning on the way here, and I wrestled through breakfast and then all the way here about whether or not to talk about it, because I don't usually tie any sort of current events into the Sunday message. But um, it's been sort of a convergence of things, and then you, in commenting on that sign on the tree, what was the quote, 2,000 years of any day now? 2,000 years of any day now. 2,000 years of any day now. That, That cynicism kind of tied together a bunch of pieces for me, so we're actually going to do it. We're going to take a little side road, but it kind of ties into what we've been doing, what we've been studying. Turn to Mark 9 for a moment. The reason we're beginning in Mark 9 is because last week, this button right here, see, this button right here, that that button says record. And you push the record button, and then you hit the play button behind it, and then the numbers turn, and when it's all over, what you have is your basic recording. Well, last week, I got so busy playing piano and other things, again, throwing my friend Jamie under the bus completely. It's his fault. Um, But I got so busy doing everything else, I forgot to push the button. And so 4 o'clock last Sunday afternoon, I was standing here, and I retaught that whole lesson to an empty room. See that reaction I just got? The, oh, and all that? You don't get that with an empty room, it turns out. And in so doing, since there was nobody in the room anxious to get on to lunch or anything like that, I had more time. So not only did I reteach last week's lesson out of Matthew 17, but I went to the parallel verse the parallel passage in Mark 9. And and it is, for the most part, the same story, except that the conversation between Jesus and the father with the lunatic son is expanded on in Mark 9. And that's why we're going to look at it this morning, because there is one phrase that I would like to emphasize. If you would like to hear the rest of it, then I will adjure all of you who are in the room to go to our website And click the play button on last week's message. And then you can hear what everybody else on the internet got to hear. But I do want to emphasize one particular verse, one particular sentiment in the middle of this conversation. Because it is so very important to how we view our faith. Todd said this morning that it's hard to explain why we're all here, that we understand theologically that we've been drawn here by the Spirit of God, and we understand, as I'm going to emphasize this morning, that it is God that gifts us with the ability to believe. But under any normal human, physical, psychological kind of explanation, it's very, very difficult to explain why people are continually attracted to the things of God, despite the pressure that the world continues to put on us to disbelieve, to abandon what we believe. And that's where the current events are going to come in this morning. So let's start with Mark 9, verse 14, is the beginning of the parallel with Matthew 17. And when they came back to the disciples, this is after the Mount of Transfiguration, They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. That's the remaining apostles. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? 
One of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. Now, there are a couple of different ways to read this particular verse. Remembering that the earliest manuscripts that we have in the Greek are what are called the unctual texts. They are written in capital Greek letters, and there's very little in the way of punctuation. And depending on how you punctuate this verse you'll get two different senses of what might be said here. Jesus might be questioning the phrase, if you can, in which case he'd be saying, if I can? Do you know who I am? Have you seen the things I've done? And then follows it with all things are possible to him who believes. Or he might be saying, if you can believe, then all things are possible. In either case, He is saying to this man, it's going to require belief, faith on your part. We've talked many, many times here, so I'll just quickly touch on it to remind you that there is only one word in the Greek, even though there are several words in the English language for belief. But it's always pistis, pistuo, versions of pistis. So it's always faith. But in the English language, we don't have a verb version of the word faith. We only have that noun, faith. And then when we talk about the activity of faithing, we end up going to the English word believe, because that's the verb. But what Jesus is saying to him is, if you can have faith, if you do believe, believe in me, believe in the power of God, then yes, your son can be delivered. All things are possible To him who believes, and immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, and this is what I want to emphasize this morning, he said, I do believe, positive statement, I do have faith. But then in a confession of phenomenal honesty said, but you have to help my unbelief. And that is a great comfort to somebody like me. Everybody in the room is nodding. It is a great comfort to know that this man could speak to Jesus and say, I do believe, but at the same time recognize that his faith was not perfect and that his faith was not constant and that the only way that his faith was going to be sufficient for a moment like this was going to be if Jesus himself helped his faith. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that Jesus is the source. He is the cause of faith. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of faith. As the author, he's the one that begins it. As the completer or the finisher, he's the one that sustains it. And so, of course, anybody who has faith, anybody who demonstrates faith, anybody who is living by faith can only be like that because Jesus has given them the ability to do that. That's also the Pauline theology. In um, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the biblical theology concerning faith is very, very consistent. Faith is a gift from God, and is the natural outgrowth of the Spirit of God in God's people. Once he places his Spirit inside you, a couple of things will inevitably happen. One is you will recognize that you're a sinner. You'll recognize your need of a Savior. 
You will repent. Repentance is spoken of throughout the New Testament as a gift. And men, by their own nature, by their own character, by their own ego, by their own self-assessment, don't see any need to repent. And the world is becoming increasingly bold and arrogant and godless and shaking their fist at God without fear. And part of the reason that there's no fear is because, well, it's been 2,000 years. And so they can put up signs that mock him. Let's say things like 2,000 years of any day now, and they think that means something. Even Peter writes about it, though, and says in the last days, there will be scoffers who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything remains just as it was. And that's the context in which Peter says, but here's what they don't understand, that a day with the Lord is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. And then he says, God is not slack concerning his promises. He's long-suffering. You see, what the mockers don't understand is that when God comes back, he's coming back in judgment and vengeance on the world. For the church, the return of Christ is a grand and a glorious thing. We can't wait. Come on back, come get us. We're set for that. For the world, it is a terrible thing. And so the world will naturally do everything they can to mock that idea because if it's real, then their judgment is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So I had a conversation with my brother last week. We were talking about the trends in society and how quickly these sociological trends are occurring. Alex and Linda are both in the field of psychology they would confirm, I'm sure, that the scientific and psychological journals of the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, typically homosexuality was considered a psychological, emotional abnormality. Correct? Okay. Now, of course, it's not. Now, in fact, it's been normalized, despite the fact that the Bible's very clear that it is an abominable activity before God, psychology, human thinking, has said, no, that's normal. And so my brother said, you know what the next phase is going to be. It's going to be that the abnormality is people who believe in unseen things, believe in a God they've never seen, voices they've never heard. That whole idea of people who have faith in unconcrete things is going to be the next area of psychology that people doubt and question. So, three days ago, an article hit the internet, flew all over the place, was repeated all over the place. I don't know if you saw it, but there was an experiment done by a university in England in joint with a university in California where they put subjects through the same kind of magnetic brain readjustment that our friend Dwight has been going through recently. And this is one of the reasons I bring it up, is that we've had firsthand experience with it through Dwight. Well, most of the places where the article is repeated on the Internet, the headline says, Magnetic Brain Stimulation Reduces Belief in God. And they argue that two very important things occurred with their test subjects who went through this process. They said after going through the process, they were less likely to believe in God, angels, demons, things like that. And secondarily, they were more open and accepting of foreigners, strangers, people unlike themselves. Now, think through this with me for a moment. What were they out to prove when they began this in the first place? Now, they claim that they divided the test subject group into two groups. Half got fake treatments, half got real treatments. And 38 to 39% of the people who had the real treatment came away with less conviction concerning God, angels, demons, those kind of things and they were less fearful of people unlike themselves. 
So first off, all that proves to their kind of thinking, because they knew what they were out to prove. They were out to prove that God is a delusion. They were out to prove that God is something that men make up in their mind and their imagination, and if you just change their chemical mind, that the faith in God goes away. But they're also proving that Christianity is prejudice against people who aren't like them. Now, interestingly, if you read the text of the actual experiment, it only talks about belief in God, angels, devils. But in most places where you find the article, the graphic that goes with it is a cross surrounded by a brain or synapses. Because the American press wants you to believe that what they're saying is that Christianity is reduced or imaginary or can be changed by changing the chemistry of your mind. When in fact, it would have to also apply to any religion. It would have to apply to a reduction in belief in Allah if it reduces the belief in God. But here's the important part. You have to keep reading to dig into the numbers. You know how many people actually went through the experiment? 39 total subjects. Half of them actually got the real treatment. And even then, what they came up with, highest number, was 38%. So 38% of half of 39, let's call it 40. So that's 20 people. And then you're talking about six people who had a slightly reduced concept of God or fear of strangers after going through this. And you know, I've actually been with Dwight when he's gone through his treatment. And afterwards, he's not exactly, I'm trying to be kind. Con- You're not exactly there. It takes a little while to kind of regroup. And it, it has caused him memory problems. It has caused him But not a loss of sense of humor. But importantly, he's been having these treatments for months, and here he sits still worshiping God. So if what they were saying was true, Dwight would be completely apostatized by now. And he's not. But here's the whole point. The point is the world is going to do anything they can, any experiment they can ramp up, any way that they can approach Christianity. And again, the experiment was not about Christianity. It was about God. It was about fear, and it was about fear of others. In fact, the experiment included the notion that death is one of the main reasons that people have faith in God, and that if you reduce the fear of death, the fear or reverence or thought of God should be reduced along with it, if death is a major motivator for belief in God. But here's what they just don't get because they just can't get it. Because they are, after all, worldlings. They are, after all, thinking in physical terms. What they don't understand is that the source of faith is not our ability to think. The source of faith is always Christ. The source of faith is the spirit of God, and the spirit of God is sufficient to save anybody he wants to save because, again, we're not saved on the basis of anything we say or do or think. We're saved on the basis of the finished work of Christ, which eternally secured all the people he came to save, and then the people he came to save are eternally secure in the mind and heart and judgment of God. Otherwise, if you're going to say that salvation and faith itself is a result of our chemical ability to think consistently, then what are we going to say about people who are faithful their whole life? And then in older age, dementia kicks in, and they don't think like they used to. They don't remember like they used to. Are we going to say those people are lost simply by virtue of the fact that they weren't able to keep it up? No, we're going to say they're fine, they're secure because it's Christ who is the Savior. And he is a complete and a sufficient Savior. And he's the one who gives you the gift of faith. Otherwise, what are you going to say about anybody who has any kind of mental deficiency where they're not able to think clearly and consistently? So the world is all excited. Look, we made it such that some people couldn't think clearly after we put them through this magnetic experiment 
And while they weren't able to think clearly, we surveyed them about what they thought about God. But now let's think biblically for a moment. Not believing in God, angels, demons, afterlife, all that kind of stuff, is exactly how the Sadducees felt and thought. Right? I mean, they believed in God, but they were majorly just the law keepers. And the big difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, afterlife, resurrection, demons, any of that stuff. Did their unbelief change the fact that Jesus was their present standing in front of them? Not at all. No. Not in the least. Jesus, the Son of God, was there speaking to them and in their presence talking about angels, talking about resurrection, and securing all those things. And the fact that they didn't believe it changed nothing. So if the whole world gets together as a group and runs a bunch of scientific experiments that come out showing exactly what they went in hoping it shows? Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. So that they can go in and say, okay, we have proven now that faith in God is a result of the chemical process of your brain. And if we just change the chemical process, that gets rid of God. If God exists, then the fact that the whole world denies him changes nothing. He still exists. You got that? Yes. Do you understand that? Look, here, I'll put it another way. Supposedly, I have a chair coming. Okay, now. Eventually. Okay. Has anybody here in the room seen the chair? No. We've seen an image of the chair, but we haven't seen the chair. Nobody's seen the chair. No one's seen. Where's the chair? Okay, but does the chair exist? <laughs> and suddenly the group broke into factions. That's right. Six weeks of any day now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure, the chair exists. It's in a factory somewhere. It's being made. It's going to get shipped. It's going to show up. When it shows up, we'll look at it and go, hey, it's the chair. But the existence of the chair or non-existence of the chair is not dependent on whether anybody here in the room has seen it. It exists. You understand what I'm saying? God exists whether you think he exists or not. The evidence already exists. The universe exists. The fact that the universe exists, according to Paul writing to the Romans, the fact that the universe exists and that it functions the way it does is evidence of a maker, of a creator, that God himself exists, whether you think so or not. And just because you got some very, very, very low sampling rate of people confused enough in their brain after a little magnetic pulse in their head to believe differently afterwards than before, that proves nothing unless you were out to prove something. And yet the internet lit up. Oh, the liberal media just clung to it and recycled it and put it out over and over again. And if you're curious about it, just go on Google and just put in magnetic proof no God, and it'll find it. It'll find it for you. Okay, so what happened here? Jesus is going to drive a demon out of a boy, and the father is at his wit's end. And when he brings the child to Jesus... He ends up dealing with Jesus' disciples, and he says to them, can you help me? And none of them can help him, and he's really just, he's at an end. And Jesus shows up, and the man says, if you can do anything, please help me. I like the, the verb here. After Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes, it says, immediately the boy's father cried out. He didn't just casually turn to him and go, well, yeah, I, I think I believe. I think. He realized that his belief, that his faith 
was tied up in his son's well-being, and he realized his own incapability. This has been happening ever since the boy was a small child, and the man still didn't have faith enough, apparently, to help the boy. And he brings him to the disciples, and they don't seem to have faith enough to help the boy. And when Jesus himself says to him, if you believe all things are possible, it made the man shout out. This wasn't a casual statement. He said to him, I do believe, but help, help me, help my unbelief. See, it's actually okay to admit that in this Christian walk, in this Christian life, that none of us are perfect at it. None of us is completely consistent all the time, and there are going to be periods in your life where you're going to go through struggles that might even make you ask the question, am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? How could somebody who's been as blessed as I've been, somebody who's had the circumstances I've been, how could somebody like me be doing this now? Well, what's the solution? The solution's never you. Because if the solution was in you, you wouldn't be like that. If you had the capacity to do better, you'd be doing better. If the answer was in your ability to think harder, work harder, construct a different paradigm for your life, if any of those were the solution, then you'd have solved it yourself. But the solution to faith's problems is always the author and the finisher of faith. So you go to him. And it is perfectly okay to go to him and say, I don't have this. Help me. Help my faith. Carry me through this because my faith is not sufficient. I need your faith. I need your faith working through me to even get me through this. How can I say that so positively and definitively? Because the next thing Jesus did was that he saw the crowd gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, and he said, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, the spirit came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. And when he had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately saying, why couldn't we cast it out? And that's the place where you do read, Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some older texts say prayer and fasting. The point being, this was a particularly pernicious kind of spirit. But notice that when the man said to Jesus, I do believe, but you have to help my faith, that Jesus did. He made up the difference between what the man lacked and what was required to accomplish this. Notice Jesus did not rebuke him for being honest enough to say, I do believe, but you got to help my unbelief. Jesus did not say, well, then you don't believe. Well, then clearly you don't believe, so forget it. Instead, he cured the boy right then and there out of compassion because the guy, the guy, because the man with the demoniac son in his faithfulness and faithlessness, understood one important thing. He knew who to look to. Think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross couldn't do anything. The thief on the cross, when he was dying, he was hanging there. There was nothing left to do. You couldn't tell that guy, go get baptized. There's another guy. There's a lot of guys in the Bible. I just found another guy. You couldn't tell him, go get baptized, because he, he can't. He's on a cross. You can't tell him, join a church, walk an aisle, speak in tongues. You can't, you can't tell him anything. He knew the one thing that got him the sure guarantee, you'll be with me today in paradise, which is that he knew who to look to. That's always the solution. The answer is always look to the one who is the author and the finisher of faith. Look to the one who gives you faith as an act of grace. And when you realize that you can't do it, when you realize you're at your wits' ends, when you realize that, that you're just 
You're just failing in your Christianity. But you're speaking in your truth. It's true. You're not trying to deceive anybody. You're not trying to deceive anybody. You're speaking the reality and, and notice how kindly Jesus responded here to the man who knew who to look to, got his son to him, and then said, I do believe, which we would all say, everybody in this room would say, I do believe. But if I said to you, do you believe perfectly, you'd say no. Well, the solution is him. He's the cure for your unbelief. You got that? Okay. That was all extra stuff because of one thing Todd said. We can go to Matthew now. Did you, get, did you really just give Todd the evil eye? What just happened over there? Really, I saw you looked at it. I saw that. What I don't understand is, well, people back then that saw Jesus' work and everything, everything that he said, you know, you know, casting demons out and everything, they didn't sit there and argue with Jesus. They were like, they left. The yeah. people that stood around saying, you know, saw that, still didn't. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And I have often tried to apply it in our current environment because the cynics of the world today claim that Christianity is under an obligation to prove the existence of God or to prove the power of Christianity to the unbelieving world. Jesus walked around on the planet proving it, and they didn't believe. So even if we were to show an atheist irrefutable proof of the existence of God, would he believe? No, 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 no. no. Because belief is always a result of God graciously granting somebody the ability to believe. He is the author and the finisher of faith. And if he doesn't give you that, you're not going to believe any more than the people who actually saw Jesus do these miracles. The very same crowd that was throwing palm branches and cloaks in the street, crying Hosanna to the son of David, a couple days later were crying out, crucify him. Why? (laughs) Because the amount of things that they saw, the evidence that he presented, the amount of miracles that he did was not enough to convert anybody. It takes the spirit of God to do that. Which is why Jesus would even tell his apostles who saw the transfiguration, don't tell anybody yet. You're not ready to tell anybody. First, you have to have the spirit of God in you, producing faith and producing an understanding of his word. Then you're ready to tell people. And so, yes, you're absolutely right, Alan. It is amazing that there were people standing there who saw Jesus take absolute authority over the demonic realm drive out demons and devils who had no choice but go. The demons and devils don't argue with him. When they have to go, they go. They even know enough in one instance to worship him. They even know enough to ask him if they can take a herd of pigs. They understand who's in charge, but human beings in their phenomenal arrogance, we're the ones walking around thinking we're in charge. And constantly putting God on trial and saying things like, well, prove it to me. See, that's the amazing thing. Satan still thinks he can win, but Satan still has to go to God and ask permission for everything he does. That's how sovereignty works. So, yeah. So if he's that blind that he knows who the sovereign is, but he's still down here raging away, seeking whom he may devour, then that is the delusion that comes with unbelief. So is it any surprise that the world is deluded in their unbelief? And yet they think they're the smart ones. And we're the idiots who believe in eternal things. But the day is coming when we're going to look quite bright. Even in our own lives, Jim, that that speaks really to the total irrationality of sin. It's just so irrational. I mean, the Satan knows these things and yet still persists. But then we can look ourselves in that we know Christ has died for us he's died to save us from our sins yet we still continually are drawn back to it it's just a total irrationality so how much do we need a savior we really 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 need a savior 
All right, we are now in Matthew 17. We are at verse 24. This is right after Jesus has told them yet again, while they were in Galilee, he told them again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved every time he would tell them things like this. They were upset by it, or they would resist it. And he keeps telling them over and over what's about to happen, what's coming. As we're reading this, they are on their way making the move from the northern part of Canaan, of the northern tribal area. And now as you follow the different cities, Galilee coming into Capernaum, he's making his way south. He's heading toward Jerusalem and the date that he has with a cross. And he's telling them repeatedly that that's why he's going and that when they get there, this is what's going to happen so that they're not surprised by it. And yet they're all going to be surprised by it. And he tells them this so that they can have confidence in the scripture that the things that are happening to him are the exact same things that the scripture said would happen, and yet every one of them runs away. And despite the fact that he has told them this is going to happen and this is how it's going to happen, the scripture also says that one of his 12 is going to rebel, raise up his hand against him, one that sits at his table and eats his food. And sure enough, that happens when Judas goes off and makes the deal with the Jewish leaders to identify him in the garden on that particular night so that he would die on that particular Passover of that particular year. All of this is foreordained. All of this is predestined to happen. And uh, so much so that Luke, writing in the book of Acts, would say that all of these things were foreordained by God to happen exactly the way they did. And yet, despite the fact that these guys were front row participants, first-hand witnesses, eyewitnesses not only to Jesus predicting it, but then to it all happening, nevertheless, they continued to think, no, that's that's not going to happen now. It's in the scripture. He keeps telling us we're witnessing it. No, that, that can't be. Then when it does happen, they run. They take off. So what does that tell you? Well, ye of little faith. It's not until Pentecost. It's not until the Spirit of God comes that Peter, the very one who is repeatedly Mr. Sandal in mouth, Peter, the only one that Jesus ever called Satan to his face, it's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the message that brings 3,000 converts into the church. Peter goes from being running, hiding, scared, I don't know him, three times denying him, to being the one who stands in front of the Jewish leaders and says, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life. Something happened. Something changed him. Something dramatic occurred. The Holy Spirit came. And once the Holy Spirit took up residence in Peter, he became a newer, much bolder, willing to declare the realities of Christ. Thinking back on that sentence, it was a really bad convoluted sentence, but I hope you understood it. So they're on their way. It's inevitable what's about to happen to him. And while they're in Capernaum, verse 24, those who collected, now the NASB says the the two drachma tax, which is actually the best translation. The Greek word is two, die, die drachma. And so two drachma is the best translation of that word. What we're talking about here is not the tax collectors that were collecting money from the Jews in order to give it to the Romans. We're talking about a temple tax. Now, two drachmas is essentially a half shekel, the half Jewish shekel. And the two shekel tax goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. When God took Israel out of Egypt... When it came time to start building the tabernacle in the wilderness, God told Moses to take a half shekel from everybody over 20 years old that had been redeemed out of Egypt. And so it was a redemption tax. And so everybody that had been redeemed out of Egypt of that first generation was required to bring the half shekel. And that was what they used in order to construct the things that God wanted constructed in terms of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the furniture, the golden objects, all that kind of stuff. And then later, as you may recall, there was a free will offering taken up 
where God moved on the hearts of the Israelites, and they brought so much that Moses had to finally say, enough, that's, we got plenty, we're good now. Which is really interesting because these were a bunch of slaves. And slaves don't typically have a lot. And that is why the night before they left, God said to them, go to all your neighbors, go to everybody around you, all the Egyptians, and borrow jewelry and earrings and nice clothes, anything you can get off them. And they were so anxious to be rid of the Israelites after all the plagues that they were like, here, I'll give you whatever you want just here, which means that this group of a million or more slaves left Egypt essentially rich, which means nothing when you're in a desert, by the way. It doesn't matter how much gold you got if there's no water. So, so God still had to provide for them, but God made sure first that they had plenty and then required a tax from them and an offering from them because that's the way God works. First, he gives you stuff, and then he expects from the stuff he gave you that you would be generous in offerings back to him. He can't expect offerings from people who have nothing, so he gives you. And then you walk around thinking it's yours. And it's not. God gave it to you and then you give back. So this idea of the half shekel, the two drachma tax, was a one-time thing with the first generation that came out of Egypt. But then over the course of time, whenever the temple had to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, they would reinstitute this same tax. And it happened a couple of different times. It happened during the time of Nehemiah. Well, by the time that Jesus was walking on the planet, it had been institutionalized. You can read about it in Edersheim's book, The Life and Times of Jesus. And he talks about this two drachma tax as an institutionalized yearly thing that happened every spring. Now, that's really helpful because that tells you when these events are occurring. It usually happens somewhere between February and April every year. And it was used for the upkeep and maintenance of the temple, not only for the welfare of the Levites who worked in the temple and served in the temple, but just the general upkeep of the temple. And over the course of years, the temple treasury had grown quite significant. The temple treasury became quite rich, which is why in the history of Israel, prior to Jesus being on the planet, you see several different incursions by different kings and armies who come steaming into Jerusalem to go get that. That's why they keep attacking the temple, because they know there's money in the temple. Okay, so Jesus now goes to Capernaum, his kind of hometown area. And there are people there that are collecting that tax. And they come to Peter. Why would they come to Peter? I, I love all the little details. Well, we know from earlier in the book of Matthew that Peter is married. He has a mother-in-law. And you know where she lives? Capernaum. Capernaum. So why would they go to Peter? Well, because he's got family there. Chances are this is just Jesus and Peter together at the moment because they really only talk to the two of them and talk about the two of them. And they come to Peter and they say, does your teacher not pay the didrachma, the half shekel, the temple tax? Now, Peter immediately answers, yes, he does pay that, which implies that perhaps somewhere in the life and times of Jesus, that Peter had perhaps seen Jesus pay this before. Because he says very affirmatively, yes, yes, he does. He does pay that. Except that, as we're going to find out in a moment, they had no money to pay that with. Now, this could be because it's just Jesus and Peter, and Peter wasn't the one who carried the bag. Remember who carried the bag? Judas, Judas carried the bag. So he might not have been with them here, considering that this conversation is about Jesus and Peter. The other 11 may have been off somewhere else doing something else. Jesus and Peter are here in Capernaum. They're approached about paying the tax. And when he came into the house, that's an interesting phrase. We're just supposed to assume that, that we know what house. I think it's probably Peter's house, Peter's family house. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, by the way, again, an interesting phrase, notice Peter has just had this conversation outside. They come into the house. Before Peter gets to bring up the concept of the tax, Jesus approaches the topic. Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? 
from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, consequently the sons are exempt. So follow the conversation. Peter's been asked, does your master pay the temple tax? Which is used to support the temple. And before Peter can come into the house and ask him about it, Jesus brings the topic up and says, what do you think, Peter? The leaders, the rulers of this world, who do they tax? Do they tax their children? Or do they tax strangers? And Peter rightly says, well, they tax strangers. They don't tax their own family. And Jesus says, and consequently, the sons are exempt. So if you're the son of the king, you're not paying taxes to the king. You're in the family of the king. But he then says, lest we give offense, go to the sea. We'll look at that in just a moment. That's the extent of what Jesus says. Now, you can read commentary after commentary, and people will give you different ideas, different concepts. I really like the notion, this is Edward's notion, and I appreciate it, that what Jesus was saying here, especially considering that he says, but, unless we give them offense, Jesus was saying, I don't have to pay that tax, because I am the son. And that money is for the temple that belongs to God. And since the temple belongs to God, I shouldn't be taxed for it. I'm the son. He says, nevertheless, we don't want to offend them, so we're going to pay it. But I want to point out to you, I want you to understand one more time who I am. I keep telling you that I'm going to go and I'm going to die. I keep telling you that I'm fulfilling scripture. I keep telling you that I'm going to raise again. You saw me on the Mount of Transfiguration. You saw... Moses and Elijah go away. You heard the voice say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here again, he's emphasizing, I'm not like you and you're not like me. I am the son. And the money that goes to the upkeep of the house of God, I shouldn't have to pay. After all, I'm the family of God. I think that's the best understanding of it because Matthew tells us this. The other three Gospels don't mention it. This is one of those unique moments in Matthew. And then it just moves on. The story just goes on, and we're not told any explanation for it, but I think that's the best understanding. Jesus saying, I don't owe that tax. They asked you, do I pay it? You said, yes, but I don't owe it. Nevertheless, so that we don't give them any offense, Go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a stater or a coin sufficient to pay it. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. How lucky was that? (laughs) That there just happened to be a fish that just happened to have a coin in his mouth that was sufficient to be a full shekel. And if Peter would just go throw a hook in, not even do any professional angling, just get in there and throw a hook in, first fish you get when you pull it out, open its mouth, have a look in there, there'll be a coin, use that coin, go there, pay for you and me. So apparently they had no money on them, but Jesus was completely capable of paying for both of them. So I think there are a couple things that can be applied here. Starting with, Jesus actually knows what your financial requirements are. And he is actually sufficient and capable of giving you whatever you need. And whatever you have, he's already given you. Remember, he's the source of everything. Whether you're talking about God providing for the Israelites by getting them to borrow from the Egyptians or whether you're talking about a gold coin in a fish's mouth, what we know for certain is that Jesus is capable of taking care of you, whatever your need may be. Now, of course, the way we think, you'll notice here that the coin was sufficient to pay that debt right then and there. I mean, I'm sure Peter would have preferred, and when you catch the fish, it'll be a whale, and when you open his mouth, 
There's going to be like a golden chariot. Be a bunch of horses. There's going to be all kinds of goodies in there, and we're just going to be rich and wealthy the rest of our lives. And he could have done that. He's capable of doing that. But no, just a fish big enough to have a coin sufficient to pay that debt right now. Because Jesus over and over again kept teaching them, you know, take no thought for tomorrow. The things of tomorrow will care for themselves. Sufficient for today is the trouble thereof. And right now, today, they had a need. Right now, today, Jesus provided the need. And that's the way it's going to work for all of us. I got 60 years under my belt now. And I can say with great confidence that I've simply never starved, never lived on the streets, never had more than I need. Well, I can't say that anymore. I have more than I need. My birthday back in September last month, my kids came to me and said, what can we get you? And I said, I have nothing. I have everything I need. I have more than I need. My house is full of stuff. I need a chair. But I don't, I don't need anything. So my point is, God has perfectly and sufficiently supplied for me all the days of my life. He has supplied me with food and physical stuff, places to live. He's provided me with health, and when my health broke, he gave me access to good health care and doctors who knew what they were doing and medicines that cured me. He's always given me a place to sleep. He's always kept me off the streets. He's always taken care of me, and at the same time, he is the one who has provided me with faith so that I do believe and so that I do hang on and so that I do persevere and keep going. So I can't think of anything, anything in my lifetime that doesn't ultimately redound back to his glory. I can't think of anything I have that he didn't give me. I can't even take credit for my faith or my belief. I can't take credit for any good thing or any trouble that has come into my life. Even the trouble has ended up producing greater faith, greater confidence, greater dependence on him. So this lifetime ultimately is all about Christ. He's the one that gets all the glory. He's the one that gets all the honor. And I think the key to contentment in life, yes, I am closing my Bible. We are actually done. Don't look shocked. (laughs) But the next chapter requires a big chunk of time. But the point is, (laughs) really, you were that excited? He closed his Bible, shrieks of joy. If you understand that, if you understand that Jesus is not only your supply, but that he does graciously supply, and that if you understand that not only is your eternity secure in him, but that your life here and now is secure in him, then whatever you have to go through, whatever the troubles, whatever the trials, whatever the drama, you can get through it knowing full well that he's got this. He planned this. He intended this. He orchestrated this. And this is ultimately going to redound to his glory and your good. And that will give you a peace that passes understanding And a contentment in this life, as we talked about at the men's group this week, that Paul wrote about being content regardless of his circumstances. Because he knew that he had Christ through whom he could do all these things. It was Christ that strengthened him. So don't be afraid if the world gets very excited about magnets that can reduce faith. (laughs) Don't get upset when the world produces even more cynicism. Don't be surprised if you start seeing scientific and medical journals start declaring that Christianity is a psychological dysfunction. I can see that right around the corner. I can see that coming. But don't worry about it. That kind of thinking has been around ever since Jesus was on the planet. And when he was on the planet, they still didn't believe. It's no surprise that they don't believe now. Just be grateful that you do because that is sure and certain proof that he has already chosen you before the foundation of the world and has already placed his spirit in you and has secured you for all eternity. Don't let the world and its cynicism shake you. You're in the hand of an almighty God and you're in the hand of his son and nothing can separate you from that. So persevere. Persevere.
Yes. Conrad. Those people whose brains were demagnetized, uh, wouldn't it have been nice if they'd asked them if they still believe in evolution? <laughs> oh, it's funny you say that, because I thought of so many other questions. Yeah. But of course, they had, a, they had a plan. They wanted to tie together Christianity with xenophobia. You know? They wanted to blame Christianity yet again and show that it was that it was simply a chemical thing that people dreamed up, the idea of God, because it makes them feel better in the face of death. That was one of the premises of the of the whole thing. In the face of death, they make themselves feel better by convincing themselves of God, but that can be scrambled chemically, so ta-da, no God. But if that's what you go in expecting, what a surprise, that's what you came out with. And again, remember how minuscule the sample rate was. It's interesting how evil, the, the evil that's being spread right now across the world and the, you know, through uh, Muslims, that uh, just this last week, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, was quoted as saying, the most toxic of all the religions out there is Christianity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How many people have you killed this week, Jeff? Yeah, my thoughts. Anybody here in this room hung anybody or threw someone off a building for being gay? Anyone? Anyone? No? I, I shouldn't have put my hand up. I mean, I was just... Anyone? Julie? No, the Muslims are doing that, and yet it's an interesting thing because just like Todd beginning the morning by saying, I can't explain why I'm here, why I'm attracted to this. Clearly, this is God doing this. He, he did say, I do know why, I do know why, because God is working through me and doing this. Equally, inverse, how do you explain the hatred the world has for Christianity? And that if you say anything against the most violent religion on the planet right now, you're politically incorrect and you're on the wrong side of history and you're xenophobic and you don't like people who don't look like you and blah, blah, blah. There's just no logical, rational way to explain it. But I keep saying over and over again, this is a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the next phrase is the darkness of the rulers of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's the only explanation for what's going on in the world. The Bible has an answer for it. The Bible has an explanation for why it's like that. But it is mind-boggling. You haven't found any other maker? No, yeah. No, no, I heard this eye doctor say that the eye has more parts in it than all of the universe that they've ever seen, with, even with the Hubble space. The Hoorah, you can create an eye. Right. I haven't heard of anybody. Yeah. Lucky. <laughs> Just luck. Chance. Random chance. Random had? mutation. <laughs> you know, that's one of the primordial ooze. Exactly. Uh, there is so much science right now that is saying, you know, for the simplest cell to function, because in Darwin's day, a cell they thought was the simplest structure. Now they found out that there's all this stuff inside a cell. You know, there's all these atoms, and then there's quarks, and then there's stuff. But inside the simplest cell, there is so much information, the DNA and the proteins that are making the strings of DNA, there's so much information going on in the cell in order for that cell to even live and work and function that you have to ask the question, where did the information come from? And it comes from intelligence. And where is there intelligence in the universe if there was no life before that first cell decided to be? Yeah, so there are lots and lots of difficulties with the idea of random mutation creating all this. And folk who argue against Darwinism often bring up an I. And I think it's a very good argument. It's a very legitimate argument because only if you have a truly complex I do you get sight, which means that creatures that could not see, that did not know what seeing was or what sight was, for some reason, in complete opposition to everything we know about Darwinistic evolution, decided to just keep making eyes and making eyes that didn't work, that didn't accomplish this thing called seeing that they didn't know existed, 
And yet they just kept making eyes and making eyes till they made one that worked over the course of millions of years. And you just go, what? No. Darwinistic theory says if something like that began happening and it didn't work and it didn't function and it didn't help the survival of the species or the recreation of that species, they got rid of it. And yet the eye just kept going. So there, there are so many problems with it. And yet that is what passes for science and intelligence in the world today. Because if you can't believe in God, you are going to believe in something. Even if what you believe in is illogical, at least it gives you an excuse and a way out of believing God. Well, the world is not going to be convinced by that. Remember always, Jesus walked on the planet, did miracles, like Alan said, drove out demons, and people didn't believe. And that's just utterly illogical. But that's because this is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. Yes, sir? Uh, I want to go back to uh, verse 27 here. When certainly Christ could have just manifested a coin right there if he wanted to, but he specifically chose um, to use a fish, a means by which Peter would have been used to, um, that was his occupation, he used to providing for himself. Is there a significance to be understood there? Because it's almost as if Christ is saying, this occupation that you've been using this whole time to supply for you, that's been me actually providing for you. Uh, And he did that specifically instead of just manifesting a coin. That's as good an interpretation as any. The thing is that the Bible writers just simply don't tell us the significance. They just tell us that it happened. It's also possible that as opposed to being a miraculous thing, although clearly there's a miraculous element, that this was actually knowledge on Jesus' part, that he just knew that somebody had dropped a coin into the water one day and that a fish had picked it up and that that fish was right off the shore at the moment and that if you go throw a hook in there and catch that fish, you're going to have a coin. We don't really know. What we know for certain is they were required to pay a tax. Jesus pointed out that he didn't really owe that tax. Nevertheless, he didn't want to give offense to the leaders right then because remember, it wasn't his time yet. He's about to offend them greatly, but it wasn't time to offend them yet, so let's just give them their coin And since neither of them had any money on them, he produced the coin, and there you go. How you interpret those events, I think there's a lot that can be said about it, whether it's, wow, it's a miracle of provision, whether it's a miracle of knowledge, or whether it's meant to be a lesson that Jesus is able to provide under all circumstances, or Jesus demonstrating absolute lordship over absolutely everything animate or inanimate. All of those, I think, are are fair conclusions. But unless one of the writers tells us, and this is it, then we're all kind of speculating. Anything else? Say goodbye to the internet crowd. Bye. 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 See you next time. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.